You're listening to an encore presentation of Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor, and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. You can reach us live at my website, drbillradiomd.com. Click join me or listen live. And also at am860theanswer.com, you can click listen live as well. I'm on the air 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, bringing you important information about our lives, our country, our way of looking at the world. And this morning I'm going to talk about and you're more than welcome to join me, by the way. I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. I'm going to talk about the president's new uh, tariff imposition on imports of aluminum and steel. And this is a debate that has raged in our country since colonial times. Uh, it was part of the reason that it led up to the Civil War, although some historians will debate that and say that the sole reason was slavery. But there was much more to it than that, as there always is. Things are never as simple as they seem. That was the main reason that a lot of people fought the Civil War, but certainly not the only reason. Ultimately, it's economics, isn't it? Everything boils down to the dollar bill, and that's what the president is hoping he can use, from what I can tell, as leverage in order to negotiate the resolution of the North Korean situation and also to force the Europeans to become more active in their own defense and a number of other reasons, as as we have seen over the past year, year and a half. And a lot of people don't really know the importance of tariffs and how they have played into the growth of our country and the foundation of our country, the uh, the formation of political and socioeconomic rules and laws and ways of behaving, not only internationally, but with each other. And you may not know this, and, and I didn't know this either, that initially, and probably for the first 150 years of the, of the Republic of the United States, Import tariffs, taxes on imported goods, were the sole, almost sole, means of income for the federal government. It wasn't until the Constitution was changed in the early 1900s to allow for income tax to come in that we started shifting away from import tariffs to income tax. And you can see the the chart, the graph of the federal revenues by type very vividly uh, when you look at the 150 to 200 years of our existence and see that income tax started to become an increasingly larger and larger proportion of the federal government's money 
And, of course, it has to have money to run. How much, that's another debate, and we'll talk about that another time. And what are necessary services that government should and should not provide. We've all got some opinions on that. But it's uh, it's amazing to see how dramatic the shift was, especially after World War II, from import tariffs as an income for the government to income taxes. And not surprisingly, the majority of the income tax comes from the upper 4 or 5%. Payroll taxes are a smaller proportion of that, although there has been a push to uh, decrease the amount that the 4 or 5% pay proportionately and increase the amount that those who are on uh, a salary and are having money withheld that they pay. And the president has, with his new legislation that he's recently pushed through, decreased income taxes for everybody. So now the burden of taxation and the money needed to run the government has to come from somewhere. So what do we do? Do we increase our import tariffs, on, especially on our close trading partners and neighbors like Canada and Mexico? Well, the president has already given them a buy and said that he's not going to impose the draconian import tariffs on Canadian and Mexican steel and aluminum. And by the way, the neighbors next door provide us a big chunk of our imported metals, including steel and aluminum. So this seems to be from what I can see, this seems to be more of a bargaining chip, uh, a way of negotiating with the Chinese and with other powers that do not see eye to eye with us on matters like North Korea. And I think that, and I hope that, that this is what is transpiring between the United States and China, because let's face it, the biggest threat right now is North Korea, North Korea being a small pipsqueak of a country with nuclear weapons, and although they don't have a delivery system that they can marry their weapon to yet, they're going to get there in a hurry, especially with help from China and Russia and Iranians and whoever else, Pakistan, whoever else has a bone to pick with with the United States or other supposed enemies. And I think that this is certainly the best way to deal with somebody is to hit them in their wallet. And if the president says, well, we're importing a tariff, an import tariff on your metals that you're sending from China to the United States, and we're going to up the price by 25% or 10% or whatever that actual number is, and then the industries in China that are exporting steel to the United States, even though it may be a small part of their economy, may be making big noise. And the other aspect of this is that the president of China wants to maintain his position as essentially the uh, president for life, the dictator for life or whatever, the oligarchy leader for life. And he's going to have to convince his people that he knows what he's doing. And an industry like the steel industry has a lot of sway over a population. Why? Because steel touches everything we do, everything you look at, everything you see, everything you eat, everything you touch has somewhere, somehow, some way 
been impacted by, manufactured by, or with uh, metals, especially steel and aluminum, cars, trucks, uh, tool chests, chairs, furniture. You say furniture, that's made out of wood. Well, how do you think you shape it? How do you think you cut it down? How do you think you ship it? All these things are through metals. Engines are made of metal. A lot of car bodies and truck bodies are made of metal. That's shifting somewhat, but it's still a large part of the production of everything we do in everyday life. So the president, not unwisely, has picked that one item that has the most impact on all of our lives, both domestic and foreign. Everybody in the world relies upon metals. We are still in the steel age. Even though we're moving into the computer age and the silicone age and the computer chip age, we're still in the steel age. And even these new 3D printers, they're not made out of cardboard. They're made out of metal. So there's, there's a lot of pressure that can be exerted in terms of import tariffs on countries that we want to negotiate with seriously about other problems, including security problems. And you say, well, I've never heard of such a thing. I didn't know this even existed. Well, this goes way back. I mean, way back to colonial times. And indeed, the, the father of our modern American way of life, Alexander Hamilton, noted that early on. He was President Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, and if you ever go to Washington, D.C. and drive by the Treasury Building, you'll see Alexander Hamilton standing in front of the Treasury Building. And Hamilton was a very astute man, one of the brightest of our, our founding fathers, although he wasn't born in the United States or in the colonies, so he could not run for president. He was still very instrumental in forming the country and in forming the long-term outlook and how we have evolved as a nation, both socioeconomically and politically. We're living in his world. And he said three things. He said, one, tariffs will protect our nascent, our, our new industries in the United States in the 1790s because we can't compete with the world powers. We don't have the population size. We don't have the industrialization. We don't have the supply line down pat yet. We're still a young nation. We're still evolving. Number two, we need income. The government can't run on air. So the only way to generate income at that time in the 1790s, and indeed up until the income tax came in in the early 1900s, was primarily through import tariffs. Yes, there were other taxes. There were sin taxes, the whiskey tax in the 1790s, and everybody vaguely remembers the Whiskey Rebellion, which was a reaction to the tax that the Congress passed and the president signed, which uh, levied a tax on whiskey made and sold domestically in the United States. That was the beginning of the moonshiners and the bootleggers, all them boys out in the hills of Kentucky and Pennsylvania and West Virginia. They all decided that they weren't going to pay taxes, and so that is what started the, the moonshining and bootlegging industry in the United States. These are normal reactions to any taxation, as, as is uh, smuggling with tariffs. I mean, if you, if you do not want to pay a 25% tariff, 
but you do want to sell your goods within the United States, then you've got to smuggle it in. It's kind of hard to smuggle steel and aluminum in, although I'm sure somebody will figure out a way. But that's a very uh, difficult thing to smuggle. It requires a lot of energy to transport something that heavy. It's very visible to all of us. It's integral and integral to the third leg of Hamilton's argument, which is it's necessary for for our self-protection and our self-defense, for our national security, because if we rely upon metals from other countries, and metals are the primary uh, materials which we make all kinds of armaments out of, whether it's a gun or a ship or a plane or a tank or a car or a jeep, or a Humvee, all these things require metal. And increasingly, with the need for heavier heavier and heavier armament on our weaponry, on our tanks and on our Humvees, from things like roadside explosives and rocket-propelled grenades, then we've got to, in some way, ensure that we're going to have a ready source of these materials if, indeed, we are called to war. Now, do you think that the president wants to go to war because he's pressing this issue any more than Hamilton or Washington wanted to go to war? Indeed not. Indeed not. The 1790s were a very volatile period in, in the history of the world. France was on the rise with Napoleon, and there was a war, world war waging in Europe, and the Federalists, Washington, Hamilton, Adams— Knox, early founding fathers, they knew that we were not ready to enter into a world war. We had just finished winning our freedom and putting together our constitution and our, our form of government. And so they worked very hard to ensure that we appeared to be and were militarily strong enough to defend ourselves should the French or the British decide to attack us. And we even had a little quasi-war with the French and the Caribbean between our naval ships and their naval ships. And there were attempts by both sides to seize our cargo ships that were going to either France or Great Britain or Spain or wherever they were going. And so it was important then, as it is now, to show the rest of the world that although we don't want to fight with you, if you come at us, we're ready. And to be ready, we have to have the raw materials, that is steel, aluminum, iron, and aluminum, iron is the raw material, and bauxite is the raw material that aluminum is uh, processed from. Those are the basic ores. And we have to be able to show the world that not only do we have these resources, but that we're actively using them, especially in an era and an age when things can happen so quickly when we can see our world unraveling, not in months or weeks or days, but in hours. We can see a launch from North Korea, and that missile can land on the other side of Japan in the Pacific Ocean in a matter of a few minutes. So these are tricky times and times that require that we think very deeply and very judiciously about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, of course, we count upon the president 
and hopefully he is making the right moves and the right decisions. And there's a lot of debate. And I think everybody both on the left and right are holding their breath to, to see what's going to happen. And there are people that are yelling about the Smoot-Hawley Act, which was a tariff that was imposed in the late 1920s, early 1930s, in response to the Great Depression. The Congress and the president at that time felt that we better protect our home industries and stop all of the imports. Well, there were already fairly high tariffs, and this raised them a little bit more. And many people say, well, that actually added to and prolonged the Great Depression because it stopped trade between other countries. And other countries retaliated, and indeed China is retaliating, although it's a very small part of the economic interaction between the United States and China. At least they're saying and showing to their people that they have the ability to step in and and challenge the United States tariff and challenge the United States and say to us, we're going to negotiate on our terms and not on your terms. Well, I think that the gun has been fired across their bow. And of course, they need to save face. That's very important in any country, especially in the, in the uh, Eastern Asian countries. I know because I live with an Eastern Asian, and having her save face at the end of an argument is very important, or, or there's going to be hell to pay for me later. So, so although we can impact them in tens of billions of dollars, their response so far has been in, in the one to two to three billion dollars worth of trade. Unfortunately, it's striking the farmers who seem to get the, the butt end of everything when it comes to trade wars. They're the first to suffer. And, you know, there's even complaints from the lobster men up in the northeastern United States that it's going to hurt their exports. Uh, this is not a real big community of, of uh, workers, by the way. But it's, it's an industry, and everybody has a say. It's a democracy. And, of course, it doesn't take as many people to farm as it did in the past. But it's still something that we have to consider. We have to think about everybody and everything and try and include everybody because we're a democracy. We have Ian from Clearwater. What's on, Ian? Come on. Join me, bud. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, what? I want to chime in what you kind of described about five minutes ago when you were talking about Hamilton. That was called, came to be known as the American system, and it was kind of upheld on the Republican-Democrat, Whig, Federalist. There was also a Republican-Democrat party, too, once. Where basically, yeah, we were an infant nation. We didn't have any capital. So basically it was like this, Doc. It was like we were a nightclub. You wanted to come into our nightclub and get beyond the velvet rope? You had to pay 25% to get in. Once you got in, you could do business in the States. You could invest your capital here. You could build your factory. And we let the other countries, it was primarily Great Britain, because that was a rapidly industrializing power that we had just overthrown the yoke of their oppression. And we didn't want them to come in and own us economically and be a colony all over again. So... The deal basically was, as I said, you come in, you pay 25%, you can do business all you want, and we let you take your profits back. We wouldn't nationalize, i.e. steal your investments and property here in the States. And it worked great from right after the Revolution up until about the 1920s. And if you look, China is 
mimicking us. They're doing exactly what we did around the Revolutionary War, War of 1812 period. They're, they're, they've, they've closed their markets, and they said, yeah, you want to come in here and do business? you got to pay the money to get behind the velvet rope, and we'll let you do business and take your money back. But they're doing it a little bit different because they're stealing our processes, and they're doing reverse engineering, and eventually they have a sinister intent, whereas we didn't because we believe in free enterprise and capitalism. They don't. They have a state-controlled capitalism is what it is, and that's my well, comment. Well, and, and you, you have a good point, but let's remember that Carnegie actually went over to Great Britain and studied the Bessemer process. The Bessemer process was the process whereby you would force air and later oxygen once it was able to be uh, refined from the atmosphere through the, through the iron ore to get rid of all the impurities and burn out all the impurities. And then you could dope it back with carbon or nickel or chrome or whatever to make the kind of steel that you wanted so we did a little theft too and uh, I don't think that that's a a major sin but what I do think is a major sin and I've argued against this another reason that I have a real hard time with the Clintons is that they let so much of our technology just go right to the Chinese without even batting an eye as if they thought it was a good thing and uh, I would agree that we need to protect our intellectual property, and I think the president has a good arguing point there. And I agree with you 100 percent, but uh, we're not completely innocent. I mean, you know, we're, no, 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 nobody. We're, we're, we're human beings. You know, yeah. if you got something I want, I'm going to see if I can steal it or copy it. I, I agree with that. I mean, the Japanese did that in the 60s with our electronics industries and they reverse engineered. The South Koreans did it with a lot of the automobile industry. I mean, you remember when Kia's first came out in the 90s, early 90s? They were jumped. They went down the road sideways. And then they got it together and they came back. Oh, not Kia. Hyundai. Hyundai. When Hyundai first came out in the 90s, they were falling apart on the road. And then, you know, 25 years later, almost 30 years later now, that's a fine, fantastic product. Yeah, the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, the Europeans basically, if you will, stole gunpowder from the Chinese if you want to go back that far because the Chinese never saw a a use for it in terms of armament. So, yeah, I mean, maybe stealing your sinister intent is the wrong description. We're never going to stop cross-politization and hybridization, I guess. But, but, and as to the Clintons, you know, they did that because they're greedy and they want to campaign contributions. They basically sold us out. And isn't that really the problem? Really, the problem is not really China. The problem is really our own politicians, i.e. Republican Democrat, for the last 35 years selling us out, literally, as well as figuratively. Anyway, well, let's I, take a mic Thank you. Uh, I, I think that, that that's a, a, a reasonable point to make, but I also think that the president has a point, and that is that if you want our intellectual property, you're going to have to pay for it. That, for me, is the is the real nut there. And so I think it's a two-pronged approach that the president's taking. And I agree with him, although I'm not sure it's going to work. I mean, I I agree that we have to try something and we're all holding our breath to see what's going to happen. Are we going to have a trade war? So far, no. Now the stock market reacted, but uh, the stock market's a a very temperamental thing. And I'm, I'm not too worried about that. Over the long haul, it keeps going up. 
the wife's all upset because she recently bought some uh, spider funds and some stocks. And, and I said, well, you know, if you watch it every day, you're going to drive yourself nuts. But I think that if we approach this with the attitude that, look, we're happy to let you have some of our technology, but you got to pay for it. There has to be some reciprocity. And we also have to remember that our protective tariffs were the highest in the world, in the Western world, until after World War II. And after World War II, after the Smoot-Hawley Act had been repealed and the president had been given the power to negotiate these trade deals, and that's why uh, Trump is capable and, and, and willing and able to do this, to have that power within his office to negotiate deals, uh, and the Congress has less control over that than they used to. But after World War II, we dropped our tariffs significantly because we realized that the rest of the world was essentially destroyed. Germany was destroyed. England was bankrupt. France was struggling. Japan was destroyed. China was economically ruined. South Korea was, was impoverished. Most of the industrialized world that we know today after World War II was incapable of competing with us. So we dropped our tariffs and we uh, welcomed their imports and did what we could to see them build back up. And now the president's saying, okay, you're built back up. Germany is a mega power. South Korea is a power. Japan's a power. China is now a power. All of the all of the big countries, Russia was bankrupt after World War II and had suffered the most losses in terms of human lives. So it made sense to drop the tariffs and encourage trade and encourage imports. And what a boon for us. I mean, let's face it, we had the ability to purchase things in mass that we would never have had had the tariffs not been dropped and we had not helped the rest of the world recover from the devastation of World War II, uh, the damage it did to the, to the country. But we also have to remember that the trade balance has gone upside down. Why? Because we started dropping our tariffs and encouraging importation in the late 40s and early 50s. And you can see that the, the curve gradually declines until 1970. And that was the end of one of the trade agreements, the Bretton Woods Agreement. And since then, we've seen the curve going negatively for the past 50 years. And so the president rightly is saying, look, we're carrying a lot of the world's debt. Uh, if you're going to have a system of, of credit, and that's necessary for any economy, that is that I give you a dollar bill and you give me a, a can of Coca-Cola, you're trusting that that dollar bill has some value. So when you go to eat dinner tonight and you give the waitress a tip of a dollar, that she's getting something of value. Well, there's nothing there. It's just a piece of paper. What's behind it? Faith. Faith is behind it, and that's the backbone of any economy. So now we're in a situation where we're saying, okay, look, we are carrying the majority of the world debt right now, and it's hurting our domestic industries and our manufacturing, and we want things to come back into balance. We don't mind carrying debt. I mean, the commodity that we're most proud of and we sell the most of is our money, because people have such great faith in us. 
and and we can't discount that. I mean, there is a tremendous value in people having faith in us as a nation and our ability to produce and perform and to help out and to go and do what needs to be done. And there's just not many countries in the world ever that have done that. I mean, you know, we are unique in that respect. But we also have to stop and say, well, wait a minute. How much debt can we take on? How much of our money can we sell before it has no value or we're not able to meet the test that is demanded to keep faith in our in our money? So, and the other argument that I have made in the past is that although money is a great thing to sell, and I'm very proud of the fact that our dollar is number one in the world, our currency is in such high demand, it doesn't take many people to make money. So it doesn't create many jobs, you know. It, it's just not a big job creator. You go to the U.S. Mint, and you walk through there, and you look down on the floor through the five-inch thick glass or whatever they have so you can't break break in and steal all the money, and there's hundreds of millions of dollars down there in humongous sheets and piles and stacks. And there's about five or six guys down on the floor, and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars. They're producing a product that doesn't take much of anything to produce. You have to have engravers. You have to have uh, chemists. You have to have some people to print the money. Uh, you buy some ink. I mean, it's it's not like making making an automobile, or at least like it used to be making an automobile, where you had a production line and there were dozens of people on that line. I mean, we have... Uh, um, automation of a lot of that industry, but at the same time, it, it's still an industry that requires a lot of human input. And with that, I'm going to go grab a cup of Joe and you guys stay here because I got more to tell you about this. This is muy importante. So get your butts back here. I'm Dr. Bill, your radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. It is Easter Sunday, and billions of Christians around the globe are celebrating the resurrection. Many in the U.S. getting to Easter sunrise services. We had one here in Washington, D.C., on the grounds of the Lincoln Memorial. Villanova and its prolific three-point shooting offense is going to face Michigan's stingy defense tomorrow night. In the NCAA national title game, the Wildcats hit a record 18 three-pointers and went over Kansas yesterday to get to the top of the mountain for the second time in three years. The Wolverines ended Loyola Chicago's underdog run to earn a chance at their first title since 1989. 50 miles to mark 50 years since the assassination of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. That's a goal of a group of teenagers marching from Memphis to from northern uh, Mississippi. They started yesterday. This is SRN News. When I need x-rays, I choose Tampa Bay Imaging. Two convenient locations, Pinellas Park in Tampa, 727-545-9674 and 813-386-3674. State-of-the-art equipment, I know these guys personally. Complimentary transportation, insist on TBI Pinellas, 727-545-9674, 727-545-9674. Hillsboro, 813-386-3674, 813-386-3674.
Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. Here's a secret couples therapists want you to know. Happy couples sleep better. I'm Trina Webster, co-founder of Z-Quiet. And I'm Dan Webster. I love my husband, but his snoring was like an alarm clock waking me up all night. My snoring was pretty bad. We were desperate for a solution, and we finally found it with Z-Quiet. It literally changed our lives. With Z-Quiet, we wake up rested and happy and, best of all, in the same bed. Z-Quiet couldn't be easier to use and works immediately. Z-Quiet comes with a 30-night better sleep guarantee. You have nothing to lose. For 10 years, we've been saving relationships one night at a time. Don't wait another night. Go to GetZQuiet.com today. Z-Quiet fits both men and women. Try it risk-free for 30 days for just $9.95. Text SLEEP to 246810 or go to com. Try it risk-free for 30 days for just $9.95. Text SLEEP to 246810 or go to com. You love your boat, but hate trailering it up, launching in a crowded ramp, pulling it out, and all the maintenance costs in between. Sell it and save with Freedom Boat Club. With eight types of boats available, fish, cruise, or do both. Freedom Boat Club handles the hassles. Boating weather is here, and so is the Freedom Boat Club with 17 Bay Area locations from Ruskin to Tierra Verde to Crystal River. Join by the end of the month and save $1,000. Veteran and first responder discounts available. Call 855-FREEDOM. That's 855-FREEDOM. Online at yourboatinglife.com slash the answer. And tell them the captain sent you. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Today, periods of clouds and sunshine with a shower or thunderstorm in spots. High 83. Tonight, clear to partly cloudy. Low 68. Monday, nice with partial sunshine. Expect a high of 84. Clear skies Monday night. Low 68. Tuesday, sunshine and patchy clouds. Expect a high of 84. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Art Miller. For AM860, the answer. This is an encore broadcast of Dr. Bill, your radio MD. That's the way you do it. You play the guitar on MTV. That ain't working. That's the way you do it. Money for nothing and it takes you free. Now that ain't working. That's the way you do it. Let me tell you, damn guys ain't dumb. Maybe get a stone on your and I'm back. This is Dr. Bill. A little bit of Dire Straits. Money for nothing. Talking about being a rock and roll musician. And the chicks are free. And the chicks aren't stupid because they know where the money is. Well, I think we all kind of know where the money is. And talking about the president's uh, latest initiative, which is to impose tariffs primarily targeting China on imported steel and aluminum. Very small part of our steel and aluminum come from China, so it's it's more of a of a warning shot across the bow of the Chinese that they need to cooperate with us. And you say, well, what's the big deal with the Chinese? Well, the Chinese were given most favored nation trading status uh, several years ago, and basically we and the European Union have been the countries that have been buying most of their goods, and therefore we have helped them become a modern nation in a matter of 
30, 40 years, they've gone from an ox cart, basically, nation to uh, highly mechanized and uh, mobile, motorized nation, beautiful bullet trains and interstate highways everywhere. We were in northern China last summer, and uh, it's impressive. I I was expecting to see a lot of people still riding around on bicycles, and I rarely saw bicycles. I mean, there were bicycle lanes, but it was like any big city in, in the United States or Europe that the majority of the roadway was given over to automobiles and trucks. And guess what? The interstates were packed day and night. I thought I was back in Toronto, Canada, or New York City, or Chicago. Oh, my gosh, it's it's just amazing. And we took a, a ride on the bullet train from uh, the old capital, Xi'an, uh, out to one of the national parks in China, and my son and I. And, oh, what a nice, smooth, beautiful, fast train. Oh, my gosh. And they're building these all over China. So this country, because of us, because of the European Union, has been rapidly moving into the 21st century. And in some ways ahead of us, some of their cities are newer and brighter and bigger and and better. Uh, and that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I'm glad to see the Chinese finally participating in the uh, the the great boon of the world that has happened since World War II, the, the great economic growth, the great intellectual growth, the great technological and scientific growth, the the ability to cure many diseases and prevent many diseases. And as a, as a physician, that's that's uh, just amazing to me. I've seen so many changes and since I became a doctor, since I received my MD in 1977. So we're talking now about the tariffs and saying, well, look, you guys have got to chip in and do more here, do more work, particularly when it comes to negotiations with countries like North Korea and Iran. And so if you don't participate, then we're going to hit you where it hurts, which is in your wallet. And we're going to raise tariffs on goods that come from your country, China, into our country, the United States. And we have that same ability to affect other countries including the European Union. And by the way, the the tariffs in the United States have gone from, on average, 35% on imported goods in the 19, early 1930s to 3.5% in 2007. Whereas the rest of the world, including the European Union, their rates have been around 5.2 over the past decade. So we've been a little bit upside down, and it may seem that the president is picking products that are uh, of great import value. Uh, but if you look at it closer, most of our steel and aluminum is domestic or comes from Canada or Mexico. And so we're really not that bad off. The stock market, of course, is going to overreact to just about anything. But I do think that this is a really good way to catch everybody's attention and say, hey, you know what? We're not going to do anything drastic at this point, but here's what we can do. Here's what we can do. And if you don't start playing ball more our way, then we're going to do more. It's a throwback to Alexander Hamilton. And he understood what hurts the most and what helps the most, and that's the wallet. And so I think that at least in that respect, the president has a good idea. Again, we're all holding our breath. 
and we all are wondering how this is going to turn out. And of course, many of the economists and historians are hearkening back to the Smoot-Hawley Act, which was a, an increase in tariffs imposed in the early 1930s in response to the Great Depression. And one of the things that the president, uh, Roosevelt, ran on when he was running for president against Herbert Hoover in the, in the early 30s, 32, was that he would repeal the Smoot-Hawley Act because he and other economists and politicians and world leaders felt that basically this trade war that erupted in the face of this Great Depression would cut down industries even more, would decrease production worldwide even more, including in the United States. Did that happen? Well, initially, the Smoot-Hawley Act did stimulate some growth within the United States, but of course you need markets, not only domestic, but foreign, because we all have goods that we have in excess. For us, it's been largely over the decades, it's been uh, agricultural products that have been the uh, the big boon for the country, and that, that shifted over the years, obviously, but even now, these import tariffs, uh, trade war, is going to impact the the farmers first. And Nebraska will probably be the state hit the hardest since it exports so much food and grain around the world. But at the same time, it's a much smaller portion of the working population. And one of the things Trump ran on was that he would increase jobs. And and so far, he's been able to do that. So we have to stop and think about, are we upside down with our trading partners it would appear that we have been putting more into the world, the international monetary system, than we have taken out over the past 30 or 40 years. And again, our trade deficit has continued to spiral negatively downward until recently, after certain laws were ended and tariffs were changed, and lower tariff rates do encourage us to buy foreign products. I mean, why would I pay $50 for a pair of U.S.-made jeans when I can get a comparable Chinese or Vietnamese or uh, Southeast Asian-made pair of jeans for 20 or 25 bucks, and really not much more than I paid for them uh, in terms of, of uh, inflation, uh, probably less than I paid for them in 1970 or 65 And we also have to look at uh, our way of life, how good we have it, better than almost anywhere in the world, at least up until recent years. And we have to say to ourselves, what are we willing to trade for what? Well, first of all, the best economic boon, the best asset to the world economy is to keep the world at peace. And if we can do that without having to rattle the sabers and and drop too many bombs here and there and go to war in four-way countries, then the better. And what's the best way to do that is to get everybody to cooperate. And you're not going to get Afghanistan to cooperate because there's not a lot of economic incentive for a small country like that at this point in history. But China, Russia, the European Union, the United States, Brazil, all the big countries – We do have a stick. 
we do have a way to encourage more cooperation and full participation. You say, well, who are we to dictate to the world? Well, I don't think it's as much dictating as it is reaching consensus. And somebody has to take the lead, and we're the big boy on the block. We're the biggest kid. And so we need to do what we can to get our trading partners, our allies, and our hopeful allies to join us and be proactive in ensuring that things are kept fairly even around the world and that we stay at peace. And China has been uh, a big problem since the 1980s into the current day, current era, because of the tremendous explosion of growth in that country and the amount of imports that have flowed from China to the rest of the world and to the United States, whereas exports have not kept up pace, exports being sent to China. So we have to say to the Chinese, all right, you're doing better now. You're doing better. So now you have to start joining us and behaving more along the lines that we expect of a major trading partner. And if you don't, then we're going to punish you. And if you want to know how to bring down uh, a Chinese emperor or a Chinese dictator, just wreck the economy for a generation and they'll throw them out because that's pretty much what the Chinese have responded to over the eons is how we doing financially. And I heard that in, in China from more than one person. We don't care what the government does as long as we're okay economically. So we know where to hit them. Well, who's going to get hurt? Well, farmers, of course, in the United States, if we had a trade war, they're going to get hurt and they're going to hit get hit twice as hard. It's going to be a one-two for them, a left and a right, because not only will the uh, other countries around the world increase their tariffs on goods imported from the United States, and a lot of that is agricultural goods, but they're also going to have to pay more for implements, farm tractors, harvesters, reapers, tillers, all the things that we think of as being necessary to run an agricultural business. It's all heavy equipment. And all that heavy equipment has to be built with metal because we're not at that point yet where we can make composite materials uh, if efficiently and cheaply enough to make all of our goods out of. Now, that, that day may come, and my son keeps yelling about the 3D printer, and, Dad, we got to get in on that. And that may very well be a way to do it, but in order to make a tractor fender or a harvester cab, going to have have to have one hell of a big uh, uh, 3d printer and that's going to cost a lot of money and it, and it's not there yet industrially it's it's not uh, um, a mega industry it's in and it's nascent it's infantile at this point so these trade moves are going to hurt farmers and as one of the northeastern senators said it's going to hurt the lobster trade because Maine has figured out how to, a very interesting situation up there, they have figured out how to keep their lobster uh, crops up in the wild. And we visited when we were up in Bar Harbor years ago, Bahaba, as they say up there. They don't like ours at the end of words. I don't know why. But at any rate, we visited the 
the uh, lobster museum, and it's also the hatchery. It's fascinating to see how they uh, reproduce these baby lobsters and then take them out and seed the uh, ocean beds and floors around the area and the estuaries with these baby lobsters. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me was uh, that these huge tanks were swirling round and round and round, and, and the person that was giving the uh, tour said, we had to do this because they'll cannibalize each other. So if they're swirling around, they can't get each other and eat each other. And the other thing that they figured out, because they were having a hard time keeping the lobster population up until they sent scuba divers down, they would take their hose and they'd shoot all these baby lobsters out when they got to a certain size and into the estuaries. And they would just have it sitting, they'd had that hose sitting at one spot on the ocean floor or on the on the sea floor and so they sent the the scuba divers down to see what was going on well the crabs would just sit right in front of them dozens of crabs and they just eat the baby lobsters as they came out so then they figured out you have to sway the thing back and forth and move it and so the boat moves around now and they distributed fairly evenly and their lobster crop the number of lobsters that they had been able to maintain are huge well, of course, you can sell them cheap then. What if somebody raises uh, tariffs on that? You might not be able to sell them so cheap. How many people are employed by the lobster in industry? It's not a huge number. I mean, they only have a short season. And what are them? A few hundred boats go out and maybe five or six people in the crew. Hard for me to know exactly. I may be way off, but it doesn't look to me like it's going to be a, a, a great number of people that are affected job-wise. And I'm not even sure that it's going to happen anyway, since it looks to me like the, the president is using this more as a weapon in negotiations, a nonviolent, pacifist, uh, economic weapon. And I'm always... Uh, amused by people who say, he's a you know, warmonger, he's going to try and get us into a war. You know what? <laughs> I think this guy's doing just the opposite. I think he's a pacifist, and I think he's using all of the, uh, not not a pacifist in the sense that he doesn't believe in violence, but I think he believes in, in peace being more important to prosperity. And I, I think that he's doing what Hamilton uh, prescribed, 200 years ago, 200 plus years ago, and he's the real genius of, of, the, uh, of the founding fathers. He's prescribing that we stay strong, that we make everybody play fair, and that we produce the necessary goods that we need domestically if we can. Some things we may not be able to produce. We just don't have enough lithium to mine, so we still are dependent upon the Chinese, and they can hit us there. But any time you have a trade war, as Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas points out, the first people to suffer are the agriculture industry. They're in the, the number one target. And you and I don't realize how much that industry has exported over the eons of our country. We supplied most of the rice for East Asia, until the Chinese and the South Koreans and many of the other countries in the East Asia area learned how to and were given the tools to and had the economy to grow their own rice. We were the number one exporter of rice in the world for a long time. 
and we still export rice and wheat. We fed the Russians throughout the Cold War. We sold them wheat, and we sold it to them cheaper than we would have otherwise. So not only were we fighting them, we were also feeding them. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, it does. You know, come on. We're big people. That's why we're so great. And we want the world to know that we're still willing to jump in and help out and give everything we have to the cause of world peace. But they got to cough up some support as well. So it's it's a fascinating show that, that we're seeing. <clears throat> I'm not sure that... Uh, that the market is reacting appropriately, although that's the way the market reacts. And I'm fascinated to see how little condemnation there is of the president. And even some of the Democratic senators from the Rust Belt are saying, you go, guy. You go, guy. The senators from the agricultural belt are not happy. And some people are saying that the president's playing one part of his base against another, the larger part being non-agricultural jobs. So we need to shift the trade conversation to where we're all relatively equal and and not have to focus on the winners and the losers. Uh, We need to focus on how we're going to make it equitable for everybody. Isn't that the great thing about democracy? You pay about the same for a pair of blue jeans as I do, whether you're in Seattle, Washington, or in St. Petersburg, Florida. I love it. What a country we live in. Oh, my gosh. And the prices are held reasonably stable throughout the United States. Obviously, some areas like big cities like New York, rent's going to be a little bit more. But even there, if you go and look for a sale, which we did, we went down to Canal Street when we were there last time. And one of the shoe stores was having a sale, one of the discount stores. And they were just as cheap as what I get over here at Pelts in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is a discount shoe store. So even in high-rent districts like New York City, the potential to have economic equality does exist. And that's a good thing. You're going to pay more for rent, but a lot of other things are the same price. Same price. Real estate, we can't export that. So that's going to go up and down depending upon the local markets. So we've ex- exported agriculturally $135 billion worth of products in 2016. And you can see why this is of great concern to the money men. And there's a lot of money and a lot of trading and a lot of futures uh, speculation that goes on around agricultural products. So uh, this has got everybody's attention, and I think that's why the markets may be reacting the way they are. Everybody's holding their breath to see what's going to happen. So far, I haven't seen any big agricultural uh, downside, although the counter-tariffs that the Chinese have proposed are on agricultural goods. Well, close to the end of the show, we appreciate everybody, and thanks for calling in again, and what a great stimulating hour this has been. I've had a good time, Bill. I'll see you later, buddy. How much time we got? Five seconds? I'm out of here.